0: Akuriabe, everyone, this is Selena. Akura de this is Carol. Welcome to the Peace Corps Tales podcast. This is episode number seven. Uh, this podcast is not affiliated with the U.S. Peace Corps or U.S. government. All thoughts, opinions, and regulations are for the informational purposes only and to allow listeners a chance to hear Peace Corps tales from returned Peace Corps volunteers. Let's get to our tale. Hello, Jesse. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Salam alaikum. My name is Jesse Bailey, and I served in Morocco from 2007 to 2009. Uh, I served in El Widan, Azilal Province, uh, and my community was about 7,000 people, as determined by the Svitar, the health center that I worked at. I was a rural health volunteer
0: yeah the smaller communities I always remember from my personal experience like I do I think I personally like those better than maybe like a city (laughs) for instance Um, but we are very interested to hear your tales, so we can just go ahead and go into it so the first question of course is why did you want to join Peace Corps
1: at the very end of high school I got invited I went to an an event here in DC where I'm living now it was after my senior year so I actually technically had graduated but it was like a 12-day intensive program for high school students who are interested in international relations and part of it was a bunch of speakers and one of them happened to be the local Peace Corps recruiter so I came and talked about his experience in Peace Corps and I went wow that sounds really interesting I was about to go off to college and do international relations and I'm like well I guess I'll pencil this into my plans after. I mean, I wasn't even in college yet, but I continued to go to every year, you know, the local Peace Corps recruiter would show up and ask questions. And um, there was one particular graduate program at my school that was full of a lot of RPCVs. So I got a chance to talk to them every year. So by the time I was done college, I had talked to a few dozen RPCVs and I was ready to go.
0: Wow. So, okay, you learned this in high school. So, does that mean you patiently waited until you're done with your bachelor's to do this? Like, how did that go, <laughs> that wait?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, as as I said, it was the summer between high school and college. And yeah, it was just basically, you know, something that was on my radar. You know, the first couple of years, probably just not as much. But, you know, I went to school in, in Massachusetts. So, a recruiter had come out to Boston to where I was in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I'd go to their talk, you know, I'd listen to them, you know, talk and, you know, ask questions and whatever. And over the time, you know, just talk to Peace Corps volunteers. Um, it turns out there are some folks that I grew up with that I didn't, wasn't really aware of as a kid, but they were first gen Peace Corps volunteers who served back in the sixties. Um, so I got a chance right. to talk to some of them as well. Um, you know, it was a very different time. And if you talk to, talk to any of them, the, the process, the training process selection was very different. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, gave, got some variety of perspectives. So by the time I was done college, I'm like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And then it took me about a year after college before I got in to Peace score. So by the time I got to Peace Corps, it'd been about Six and a half years or so since I've been interested. So I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm finally here. So
2: it sounds like you were a pro at Peace Corps without being an actual volunteer. (laughs) You've referred yourself for almost six years. That's fantastic, though.
0: Yeah. I hope those listeners who are still interested, and once Peace Corps gets running again, we want to kind of help them know what to pack. So, what was one item that you were just so happy that you packed when you left for your service?
1: This is a really easy one. Um, I packed a small shortwave radio, which was really great, um, through my service because it was something that allowed me to reach the radio of mostly Casablanca and Rabat and the major radio stations in Morocco. So I was able to follow along and hear pop music and whatever through my service. So, I know when you go into Peace Corps, you sort of like you go into Peace Corps for a couple of years. And at least when I was there, maybe a little less so now when you're a little bit more connected. But there's sort of this gap. You come back in like two years of culture and all this stuff has happened. And you're like, I'm behind the times. Like, I don't understand any of that. <laughs> and for me, at least at least for music, like. When I was there in two thousand seven nine so that was the beginning of like say for instance, Lady Gaga started then, and there was somebody who came back from Christmas and was like, "Hey, there's like this person, and she had this really popular song, and like it, we were still in Morocco, and people were like i don't I don't get it, but um you know, I knew what she was talking about because I had heard it on the radio in Morocco, and so things like that, so it was one piece that wasn't a gap when I came back that I sort of had a through line so I was just thankful. I mean, it wasn't certainly wasn't the kind of thing I thought that would be like super important. It was just like, oh, like it's small and a little thing. It'll be nice to bring. And it was just like something I appreciated afterwards of something not one part of life I didn't have to like try to catch up on two years that I missed when I get back to America.
0: You know, I'm actually pretty shocked that they had the songs playing in Morocco. If They were, they must have been super popular in the States to then go over to Morocco to be played as well. Because I know in, like, Madagascar, we wouldn't always hear the up-to-time kind of thing. It was more through, like, Facebook or something nowadays because we had our phones. But it wasn't necessarily through the radio. So that's pretty cool that they already had the songs there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's th- one of the things about Morocco is it's right across the Straits of Gibraltar from Europe. It was a mix of American and Moroccan pop music as well as European music. So I got some of the European pop songs that were on at that time as well. But the American stuff got mixed in, and um, places like Rabat and Casablanca in a number of ways, they are pretty close to Europe, so they are more worldly in in, in some ways like that. That was great.
0: Oh, cool. Sounds like a nice little pocket. (laughs) You get the wonder of the rural life, but also get some of the good from (laughs) everything at home. Uh, What was your best memory or highlight from your pre-service training?
1: Uh, When we first got to Morocco, we were in Rabat for a few days, and then we got on a big bus to go to where our training was, which, as it turns out, was Azilal Province that's where we did training for three months. And so we got on this bus and we're driving along and it's it's a, it's a mountainous province. So we're going up into the mountains and like winding roads and we come around this bend and there's like this beautiful site and there's like a dam and a lake and it's like pretty picture, it's very picturesque. And so a number of my classmates, and actually I wasn't one of them, started taking a number of pictures um, because the dam creates a lot of electricity for the country. It's like part of the national like security of Morocco. And so they have a bunch of soldiers there on the dam guarding it. And so the bus actually got, so the road actually goes onto the dam. You have to drive over the dam along the road. And so while we were there, the bus actually got stopped by the guards. And they boarded the bus, and there was like, oh, there's some reports because there's guards sort of strung, strung along the way that said people are taking pictures of the dam, and that's actually not allowed. That's part of why the guards are there oh. is to, take, to spot <laughs> to spot people taking pictures and to prevent them from taking pictures of the dam. And one person in my cohort, she's like, oh, like here, that was me. She fessed up. And she showed that she had taken some pictures off the dam, not of the dam. So she didn't actually have any pictures of the dam on her phone. And like, oh, okay, that's fine. And they let us go. <laughs> and everybody breathed a big sigh of relief. Um, and part of part of why this makes it a favorite memory is sort of in retrospect. At the end, when I got my community assignment, that's where I was living. I was literally living by that dam, and I saw it every day. And so I got to see the guards and stuff, and I took a few pictures as we were leaving after the dam, after the guards had, because it was really beautiful, and the lake was really beautiful. And then for two years, I got to live right there. Wow. You know, that was some foreshadowing, I guess, for me um, in my community. And I got to know – well, I didn't really get to know the guards so much, but – over the two years, I saw them yelling, and they have a whole system of like whistle blowing and whatever for tourists. And a lot of them are Moroccans. It's not just Americans. There's, there's not so many Westerners or whatever they go up there, but Moroccans do go up there um, to vacation and stuff. So that sometimes I would see them getting yelled at by the guards over the, over the <laughs> couple of years.
2: And you from your house, you were like, ha ha, gotcha. You should, you shouldn't be taking pictures either, like I did a few years ago. <laughs>
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I saw that. I saw that behavior over time. So Uh,
2: going through with that memory, can you give us a little bit of a description? What were your living conditions through pre-service training? Did you guys stay in a facility or do you guys have like host families? What was that whole experience?
1: Yeah. So it was a mix. We stayed in a hotel in Azilal province and the capital was Azilal. Um, so we're all staying in a hotel there for the time, but we broke off into, uh, CBT groups or community based training groups, um, of groups of five and we would go have host families. So we had our initial host family, um, during training. I think the longest time we ever stayed there was like 10 or 11 days, but we might go there for three or four days and then come back. So we do sort of intensive language and culture training, as well as a chance to like work with our host families to try to learn the language. Mine actually, I had to cheat a little bit because it turned out one of my host sisters was actually fairly fluent in English, which is great for communicating and helping like, you know, with things. But it didn't help my language long term, but it was, you know, just helpful to be able to like really communicate with my my host family. Uh, and since I lived, because I, I got placed in Azulal Province, I got to go back and see them a number of times over my service because somebody else in my cohort actually got, who was actually part of that um CBT site, he actually got placed there for two years. So he actually lived in that community. And so I would go visit. And when I did, I usually would stop by my my other host family to say hello.
2: Oh, he's, he's so different from our experience because we were just like a whole group and that will say we had host families but we didn't have to go back and forth like you did. I do have to ask though. Do you have to learn Arabic or Berber?
1: Yeah, yeah, good question. That was one of the things. So I learned um a dialect of Berber, Tamazight. So it's one of the three major dialects. And so that was great for integrating in the community, but overall it was frustrating particularly in the second year when i i would go to cities and stuff and i'm traveling around and i knew things but i didn't really speak arabic very well i mean i got i as i said i would i I learned some survival arabic i knew enough to like be able to get a bus or you know get myself a hotel room or you know order food but you know i couldn't really communicate very well with arabic speakers and they most arabs the vast majority don't speak berber so they're just like huh, what? like they didn't understand. Okay. Though they would, they would hear a little bit of Berber. Eventually, I mean, they knew maybe a few words. So eventually, I'd say some word, and they, oh, you're speaking Berber. Oh, that's really unusual. Like that's not standard.
0: Can you give us an example?
2: <laughs> yes, please. Just whatever. Something that comes to mind.
1: The best I can say is uh, "tuch bezef," which means I've forgotten a lot. Um, it's been, it's been. That's the thing. It's like it, it's it's not. Uh, it's been ten years, and I it's mostly gone. Unfortunately, I don't mm-hmm. speak almost. Yeah. I speak very very little. Um, but tugh is like a good Berber word. Um, they use the Arabic alphabet. And the other thing I should say is it is Arabic, but Moroccan Arabic, known as Darija, is very very different from the Middle East. It's it's more like, it's more akin to like Creole. It's like those who speak arabic from like the middle east if they come to morocco they they're really confused and they can't really follow along because it's it is arabic but it uses the berber sentence structure not the arabic sentence structure so when they put it's arabic but when you throw in the the sentence structure and obviously being further away from the core there's a lot of like as i said berber influences as well as french influences and various other influences so that there's a lot of dialectical variation. They're just sort of confused. But Moroccans can understand, like, somebody from the Middle East because of TV. A lot of the TV, you know, it comes from the Middle East. Uh, so it's in the standard. So that's what they're watching. So they can understand, but, you know, can't speak because, again, the way the sentence structures are all flipped around and mixed up, it makes it really hard. I mean there there's some but you know you definitely have to it's like learning a new language I understand to like learn like modern standard Arabic from Teresia.
2: Yeah. Selena had and I had the pleasure to go to Morocco for our vacation and I had to say I didn't get anything. I can say I'm a little bit good with languages, like I can get little things here and there, but Berber was like nothing. I was completely like, No, I'm <laughs> never gonna get this. Yeah,
0: I didn't even try.
1: If you look at these like linguistic like trees, and they have their little branches Berbers like off to the side it's this little weird like peninsula thing that's not very connected to other types of languages around it, so it is fairly unique in that way. They do use the Arabic alphabet they use some of the different words in Arabic they said to uh, that they really like the huh, and the. Huh um those, those are, those are sounds, non-English sounds, but that are part of the Arabic language that they tend to like the Arabs. They speak the uh, I, the I and the, uh, uh, more often. So that helped me when I was trying to learn because um I did speak a lot of Berber and I actually, this is difficult for me as, and was really in, uh, unusual is that there was in my particular village, so as I said, my community was 7,000, but that was over 12 villages. And a few of those villages I had never actually made it to in my two years. But my village was about three or 400. And there was a number of actually Arab speakers, and they were mostly soldiers or retired soldiers. So I was hearing a lot of Arabic every day as well. And I'm trying to learn one language, but I'm hearing two.
2: Uh-huh. Um, and it
1: took me months before I could just verbally separate the two enough to realize eventually, oh, I'm not understanding because it's not that my barber is bad, it's because he's speaking to me in Arabic.
2: <laughs> I wanted to note, you did mention that your site was really close to where you guys had your training for pre-service. But can you give us a little bit of details? How was the transition? Was it hard for you?
1: Yeah, I was, I was only about 50 or 60 kilometers from Azilal, the the, the provincial capital. Um I'd say overall it was a bit boring, um, so I lived I lived with a host family, um, so I got a new host family, and we were required to live with our host family for the first three months to help start to integrate us into the community, and then we got a chance to, um, I'd say about 95-98% of the trainees afterwards would go find their own house afterwards.
0: Wait, you had to find your own house? So it wasn't like Peace Corps helped you find one? You guys had to go find your own?
1: Yeah, we had to find our own. Um, That was part of the thing about, you know, host families to help out. I really lucked out. Um, I had a nice host family, but I was learning Berber. Um, I had an Arabic host family. And as I said, very few Arabs speak it, but my host brothers grew up there. And so they spoke it. Um, I realized by the end of my training... I spoke a little bit better Berber than my host mom and she had lived there for twenty years but she was an Arabic oh, speaker wow. and had And that was one of the things when I said where I was people would be Oh yeah, your host mother, she speaks very little Berber. And that's what the Berbers <laughs> would constantly tell them like, Yeah, okay. But after the after the three months- after the three months, so that would be six months in from when I got my Berber was a little bit better. My host brothers would start to translate between us because my, my, because sometimes she didn't get fully what I was saying because I was speaking in Berber. But it was, it was a little bit boring. There wasn't a whole lot to do. My birthday was there. My birthday was about two weeks in. So I had the most uneventful birthday I've ever had because it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I was just like, there, there wasn't much to, you know, there wasn't much to do. And In that culture, they actually birthdays aren't a really big thing. So there wasn't like a celebration or anything. My, my celebration was I had recently and then, um, picked up some mail from Peace Corps and at least when I was there, we got subscriptions to Newsweek. So I had a couple of Newsweeks and I'm like, all right, I'm going to read those for my birthday. A little, a little bit of something. Um, The next year was totally different, but, um, yeah, that 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 first one was you know two weeks in, and I'm just like hanging out by myself, and I barely know the language and whatnot. It was.
2: So I gathered your birthday was definitely not one of your highlights from your service, at least your first birthday. Right. <laughs> but can you go back and think about those three highlights from your service? Yeah,
1: um, I'd say the the first thing, which maybe you might. Agree with is just amazing friendly people of Morocco. They're very hospitable. They're very nice. It was just I met a lot of great people, and you know, there was a lot of language barriers when I was traveling around in Morocco. People were all just very friendly and welcoming and nice. Particularly once they realized that I lived there, I lived in Morocco, and I wasn't just tri- passing through. There it was like an extra niceness factor. You know, there's a, a you know people definitely treated me well there. One of my highlights I would say was near the end of my time and I was I went up to Rabat um, and I actually went up a little bit early to see the Super Bowl um, and then the week after was our uh COS medicals which at least for us took place about 2 months roughly before we actually COS'd um, and so I was just hanging out there for a week in Rabat and as it turns out, three Peace Corps groups, I'm trying to remember what the, the names of them all, there was like sort of the steering committee. I'm forgetting what it was called now. I'm, I'm blanking out. But there's Peace Corps volunteers from around the, the country came in for for this me, this meeting. Um, well, three meetings, actually. And some of them were every four months and some of them were every three months. And this overlapped where they this happened to be the month where they all sort of came in. So for a week, there was like 70 RPCVs, which was definitely the, the most RPCVs I was around in my whole entire time. And that was really great. There was about 210 or 230 RP- Peace Corps volunteers who served in Morocco at any given time when I was there. So this was like a solid like quarter plus of them, maybe a third, uh, because they served on one of the various meetings. Oh, yeah, that was one of them was VAC. Uh, that was sort of the steering committee, and there was a couple other ones. And so I just had a fun time hanging out in Rabat around all these Peace Corps volunteers. Um, as a rural health volunteer, um, my province was basically rural health volunteers and environmental volunteer. And we had like one token small business development volunteer and one token youth development volunteer. They weren't really in the rural areas. So that was the other thing. I got to meet a whole bunch of these um youth development volunteers and small business development volunteers who are from bigger areas that I never would have met in, in my province because they were they were posted very far away in larger places so that was a really great week and then I, and to cap that off then it was like C.O.S. Medical so a bunch of people from my stage showed up for you know the weekend to do all that stuff um, so that was a fun time and plus I got to see the Super Bowl <laughs> at the Marine barracks. So it was just, you know, a, a packed, you know, 10 day of like all things Peace Corps. Um, the other thing also is just, I had a really beautiful sight. I mean, I lucked out. I just had, I mean, as I said, I had a, I had a lake and a dam and I was in the mountains. Um, I was only 800 meters above sea level, which meant that I was just below the snow line. So everybody else in the province, like they got snow, like You know, it was really cold in the winter. It was very beautiful, but it was, like, below freezing. Like, we didn't really have heater, you know, much of the way. I mean, I had a little plug-in heater, but that was it. But really beautiful. I actually had one of the surreal parts of my service um, was I had a four- and a five-star hotel being built very slowly in my community while I was there. (laughs) Neither of them got finished by the time I left, but it was for – it was – my my place is only about four hours away from um, Rabat or Casablanca if you have a car and you're not taking transportation. So if you got a private car, it's only four, it's only four hours away. So it was a vacation spot for some of the more well-off Moroccans or French expatriates who'd come up there and have houses by the lake. And I'd see them on motorboats and stuff in the summertime. That was part of my community as well
0: wow he got to see all these people having like summertime fun while he's in his rural community that's kind of (laughs) cool
1: yeah just yeah sometimes see people around in jet skis i'm like i'm in peace guard this is like crazy there's (laughs) jet skiers and i'm in peace guard and there's jet skiers it was you know my, my community was in the very literal sense stratified like there was a little community of people right on the lake and it was moroccans and some of them would have houses like in Switzerland or in France or whatever, or and in Rabat and Casablanca and Fez and whatever. And this would be like the third or fourth house. And then the farther oh, up the mountain, you. the farther up the mountain you went, you know, the poorer it went. So I was in the community, Beni Adan, which is of the local community, was like the most well off. And then you could go up further up the mountain it would be poorer, more remote villages, some of which I, I got to eventually, and some of them way up there. I never, I never went. So it was just a real stratification and sometimes pretty surreal, sometimes being like, here I am and here I am in Peace Corps and there's like a motorboat, people partying and having fun and jet skiing on the lake.
0: Did you ever get to know them?
1: No, I didn't. I mean, I was hoping, I thought I could be a great bridge between that community. I mean, just in, in a number of ways, as well as it would be fun to hang out with them, but it was basically a language barrier um
2: (laughs) there was no bridge (laughs) they well
1: one they were pretty they were pretty isolated they didn't really hang out there's one guy over the couple years who I guess spent a lot of his time in Switzerland and he would come twice a year and he, he would actually hang out with the guys in like cafes and stuff but the thing is that again he you know he spoke Arabic and French and I spoke English and Berber so like there was that, again, there was that lack of language. You know, Morocco is a very polyglot place, and there's, like, four or five languages. So, like, I've got one or two, but not the right combination for the, the that community of people who live down there. You know, I tried to reach out to, like, the foreman of one of the hotels to try to, like, meet the owner sometime or whatever to tra- chat with him. But, you know, that never happened, and he was Arabic. He was brought in and whatever. It just... So unfortunately, that never happened, but I got to see them. I got to see them, but not really interact with them.
2: Yeah, it sounds very, very challenging. I can't even imagine being two years trying to navigate that system, two languages, and you can't really fully speak either one. Kudos to you, because it sounds a very, very challenging service.
0: Carol, I have to say I'm very thankful for being in Madagascar now, because though the capitals spoke in like French and they learned French in school. They didn't really use it. They mainly use Malagasy, which is what we learned. And I'm just so thankful that like, it sounds very confusing where you served, where it's just all these different languages, kind of a mesh pot. And you're kind of bouncing around trying to figure out who can I talk to? (laughs) Because at least for us, it was just Malagasy. We could go anywhere, really. And they would speak it as well. Um, Unless they were like pretty wealthy, then it would be more French or, or English, actually, at times, but mainly French. And then there was like kind of the barrier where we're like, oh. We know Malagasy, we don't know French, but that was few and far between, so it didn't matter, but I can't imagine, like, just every day going to, like, a coffee shop or something and being like, are you going to speak Arabic to me, or barber, and, like, that, yeah, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, they also, they also spoke French, too, so there's French thrown in there as well, Um, and again, like, like you were saying, you know, they're, they're required to uh, learn French starting in third grade, But they didn't really use it like where I was, but they could understand French. And I actually spoke a little bit of French, not very much. But it was interesting when I was around a bunch of Peace Corps volunteers and a lot of them had spoken Spanish. And that's the thing they would start with us in French. They would assume that we were we were French speakers because a lot of the tourists are from France and they would start in French, and I was able to understand because they're like, just simply like, where are you going or whatever? And then I would respond and they would be a little bit confused, but uh, the Peace Corps volunteers, but then they would switch to like Arabic. And then when they were speaking Berber, they would just be like, okay, this is, this is weird. I don't quite understand why are you speaking this <laughs> language? But yeah, there's three languages. Um, and you could also get prices in um, three different ways as well. I feel like the currency helps explain the situation. So if you're in the rural area, you're using reals, which hasn't officially existed for 80 years. And then you have Durham's. And then if you're in a a fancier place in the city, they'll they'll actually give it to you in francs. They'll have prices in francs as well. And as a Peace Corps volunteer, you know that you can't afford anything in the store. If they're giving it in francs, then you're like, too rich for my blood. Like, I can't afford any of this. (laughs) <laughs> so, that you know, and that, again, Franks is another math thing, so you have to, like, do a lot of this to, like, translate and figure out what wow. it all is.
0: Okay. So going with that, um, what was your biggest challenge throughout your service?
1: My biggest challenge, I would say, was definitely just sort of, you know, isolation. You know, I got to see Peace Corps volunteers from time to time, you know, maybe a few times a month. But... I, unfortunately, never became fully fluent in Berber, so I couldn't really get in-depth conversations um, with folks in Berber. Um, Eventually, I realized, unfortunately, it took me about a year to realize that the French teacher, who was Arabic, actually spoke pretty fluent English. So I was able to have, like, intellectual conversations with him and go and, like, we'll watch a movie and, like, talk about it or whatever. But he was the only one. Um, So that was just, you know, definitely, you know, just more isolating of, you know, not being able to like, full, you know, people were really friendly and nice. And I got to know a lot of people, but I couldn't have real in-depth intellectual conversations with most people. um, And particularly for that second year, that was, you know, more challenging.
0: How did you cope with that? Like with the loneliness? What did you do to try to help you throughout it all?
1: Probably trying to stay connected and hanging out with, uh, East Corps volunteers, um, the nearest major city to mine was, uh, Marrakesh. And being on the, on the road leading out of the province, um, I had a, I was really rural, but I was really lucky in having a lot of transportation. I actually had 17 daily buses go through my site and oh, sort of unlimited. Yeah. Most of them were places that are actually Marrakesh. They were from the south, or or down going down south is Marrakesh, and they come up to Azilal and then go out go out the province and continue north or continue south down to Marrakesh. So,
0: um, I probably
1: spent a little bit more time in Marrakesh at the end of like once a month or every like five or six weeks. Um, I got to the point where I was at this internet cafe. Um, and I was about a year and a half from my service and like the local internet cafe I was like, Oh, you're back again. And he recognized it and who I was. I'm like, okay, right. I guess I've been here a while, but again, you know, I'm not the average, average tourist, you know, speaking, you know, I'm speaking Berber. So there's, you know, you know, oh, you're you know, Peace Corps volunteer. You're one of the Peace Corps volunteers around here. So, um, that and just trying to connect and hanging out with, uh, Peace Corps folks and as I said sort of near the end it was nice when I went up to robot and was around all those Americans and it was about two months back and I started traveling my my parents actually came and visited me separately but within my last two months of service so I did a lot of traveling with them and that sort of helped Get me back into help reintegrate into America to some extent, being in, being in the cities and stuff with them of being, getting back to not so rural life in Morocco.
0: Did you ever have fun bargaining? Because I remember when we went to Marrakech and Casablanca, we went to a lot of the little like stores that were there. I don't know. I don't remember what they're called, but I loved bargaining. And I remember the people there, they thought I was a Moroccan because they're like, you look like us and you're bargaining really good, but you speak English like. (laughs)
1: Locally, yeah, because I spoke Berber, I could, you know, sort of actually bargain. but. In places like Marrakesh and stuff, I found it a little bit more frustrating because they give me ridiculous prices, and, like, I couldn't really bargain. I could literally say no. I mean, I could say no in Arabic, but I couldn't really go back and forth. Like, I knew they were way high and whatever because I lived there, and I knew it was a ridiculous price, but I couldn't say that to them. You know, I could only refuse. So it wasn't – I mean, it was sort of bargaining, but it was just simply me saying no. It wasn't – the full extent i would have loved to have like gotten into it with somebody about you know what a ridiculous price he was price giving me but all i could say is no i'm not going to pay that much um so that part was a little bit uh frustrating but locally i could bargain back and forth and stuff and you know that was nice
0: dang (laughs) it sounds like a mess (laughs) so going with that momentum what was your top like wtf moment
1: I was on a bus going home. Um, It was going to get me close to home anyway. It was a long bus ride um, from Fez. I do remember that the guys in the bus, so in Morocco at least, there's usually three guys in the bus. There's the driver and then a couple of other guys usually like taking tickets and, you know, getting money from people. Um, I took what was known as a souk bus or like a local bus. There's the fancier ones that had designated stops that I was taking the local ones. So, and I could tell that they were really in a hurry, which is a little bit unusual, That not usually the case. Um, and we got to the town where I was gonna get off and they had been doing a bunch of paving in the area and they had been paving the roads. And we got stopped and pulled over and basically said, you can't go for it any further. We were very close to the bus stop. We were, I don't know, like several blocks away. But they're like, we're, you know, they're paving, I guess, so you can't, you can't go further. And these guys got pretty angry and animated. That's something that sometimes happens, um in public between, uh, Arab men. They're just like, they got, they got this thing and they're, they're, you know, they're yelling at each other. And a lot of times it's, you know, not serious at the end, but this really, this really did get serious. Um the cops got called and they're like yelling at, they were yelling at the cops. And then one of the guys, and, and we we're, like, pulled over, and it's, like, right where it's paved, so it's, like, kind of hot pavement, and it had, like, literally been paved that day. They're, like, you can't go further. And he crawled under the bus to, like, prevent it from moving, like, going forward, because they wanted to move the bus, and I guess they were, like, no, I don't. Again, this is, they were they were Arabs, so, like, I couldn't, I didn't get the whole entire conversation because I just, I couldn't follow along, but they were really animated and felt very strongly and like, Crawled underneath the bus and was like holding onto the bus to make sure that it didn't move. And like the cops had to like crawl under and like physically remove him from from the bus. And I think I'm pretty sure he got arrested. And the others like the other guys like followed along with him like to the station and then later on. I saw the bus being driven, obviously, probably not by them, back up to Fez. Um, like, I was almost off, so I was getting, I just grabbed my stuff, and eventually I was just able to walk over to the bus station. I can't remember if I, I had enough time to catch one of the buses or I took a grand taxi back. But while I was waiting, I saw the bus going back up north, and it was supposed to go all the way to Marrakech. so obviously, like, that bus trip didn't happen, and I don't know what you know. The the uh, the people on the bus that were trying to go had to figure out other ways. But that was just like a pretty crazy, a pretty crazy experience of like what is going on. Like what compelled the guy to like crawl under there and like totally like forced or remo- remove because they wanted to move the bus somewhere else. I I mean they were paving the road. I mean it just like. It, what happened? I I just didn't, yeah, that was, a, that was a crazy situation.
0: At what point in your service did this happen? Was this like early on or after you'd already been there a good while?
1: I had been there a while. It was in my second year. So I was used to some forms of, you know, sometimes, particularly when I'm, I spent a lot of times hanging out in taxi stations and stuff. And sometimes, you know, guys could get in each other's faces about stuff. Sometimes it was like other taxi drivers. Sometimes it was passengers or whatever and they're just like kind of getting each other's face sometimes um but then they cool off and it's all good but this was like something else completely and it also like during the situation like why were they just so deeply upset They like felt yeah. so affronted for some reason that they were being told like where to move their bus and whatnot i just i couldn't get why they were so upset in the first place
0: yeah, that's so interesting. I can't even imagine like seeing that breakout and then someone crawling under the bus to like protest of saying, "No, we're not going to move this." Like that's that is a definite old WTF moment because it's just kind of like, what is happening? <laughs> so, let's see about this moment though. I am curious, what's your top OMG moment?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is this is also a fun one. Uh, We coordinated a a bunch of Peace Corps volunteers, and we decided to go to the next province over. We got invited over to do a version of Burning Man way up in the mountains in Morocco. Actually, was perfect. Uh, Six of us went over there, which for grand taxi purposes is perfect because that's a whole grand taxi, and usually you have to, like, I don't know about where you guys are. It's probably similar where you like you have to wait and then it fills up and then you go. And because there are six of us, we could just show up and like we want to rent a taxi right now. Like and then we just drive off. We did a bunch of taxi hopping. And so I went there and it ended up being about 15 or 12 of us. And we went um there's this big, beautiful lake and we're hanging out there. And some local people there had sort of created a bit of a. Burning Man, very much peace corps style. It was, you know, a bunch of sticks. Somebody had paper mache a big ball and like some cardboard, and we were just out in the lake camping that night and drinking, and then we burned it, and it was really fun. And I'm sure the I'm sure the Berbers were like, "What are those crazy Americans doing?" And that's like totally <laughs> something we probably couldn't really accurately describe. I mean, not that I've been to Burning Man, but Clearly, as a very much of a facsimile of Burning Man, I guess, but we had a lot of fun. It was a fun weekend.
2: It'd be fun to interview one of those villagers and be like, Do you remember a bunch of like Americans maybe 10 years ago burning some stuff? What do you think about them? You know? Because we usually feel like, you know, the locals are doing something that doesn't make sense to us, but I can only imagine how many moments. They feel the same way, but the opposite towards us, you know, where we are acting like maniacs and they are like, what are they doing?
0: Like Carol, when you were in your site with like part of your head shaved and they're like, oh, it's because she's American.
2: (laughs) She's just weird like that. (laughs) (laughs) So during the little meet and greet that we like to do before the interviews, you mentioned a little bit of a story So we want to hear about that.
1: Yeah, so it gets back to a little bit. As I said, I had been planning on doing this for years, and I had a good friend I knew since elementary school, and he had plans post-college, and that all totally switched up on him near the end of his senior year, and all of a sudden he wasn't going to do what he planned, and he didn't really have – or actually say, starting in junior year, and he realized, like, all of a sudden, like, he didn't have a plan after college. And I'm like, you should do Peace Corps. And he, uh, he graduated before me, so he actually COS'd from Senegal six months into my service. And so he and a couple of his friends who were from their, his CBT group, and they were really tight, came up to Morocco. And I hung out with them for a while over a period of a few weeks. And so they had, they were literally just out of Peace Corps service. They were, you know, a week, two, three weeks out from Peace Corps. Um, so they were really good. And at one point, I mean, during the summit, like, I definitely wanted to show my friend Ken, you know, my site. I mean, I didn't know about the other guys, but, like, definitely had to, like, take a detour. So we split off and we went to my community for a few days. And before that, we had met up in Marrakesh and he had bought um, a jalaba. It's a traditional sort of robe that you would wear, particularly older men. It sort of looks like sort of if you know from, like, Star Wars, like Obi Wan Kenobi was wearing, that's like sort of like traditional Berber wear for people. Um, So he had one of these, and he had been in he had been in you know as I said he had been in Senegal for two years, and Senegal is also a Muslim country. Um, It's it's obviously a different language, but the greetings, the a lot of some of the things are the same, even though the language is different. As I said, particularly the greetings. So. I was able to teach him pretty quickly, like super quickly picked up like how to like do greetings. Like it was, uh, it was basically the same pattern as where he was. It was just different words. So he shows up to my communities wearing a jalaba because, because <laughs> one of the things he was complaining about being cold is in Senegal for two years. So it was never below like 80 degrees. So it was like, so something also warm. So he's showing up, he's wearing a jalaba and he's just like saying hello to everybody. He's, like, he, I mean, I, I taught him, like, maybe all of 15 words in Berber or whatever, but he's using all of it. He's just, like, saying hello to everybody, and I'm, like, damn it, Ken, you're, like, being the better Berber than I am. I'm like, whoa, this is, like, great, and they're, like, oh, yeah, your friend, he's, like, he speaks so good at Berber, like, his Berber is excellent. It's, like, he knows, like, he knows the greeting words, that's it, but he was just, like, stopping and saying hello to, like, everybody along the street as we were walking around. He's being super friendly. He just knew he knew all of that because he had been doing that for two years. So I got a little upstaged by him for a few days, but that was fun. And people would ask me, you know, after that year and a half, like how he was doing and whatever. They were, they were super impressed by him. They were super impressed. His, his, Peace Corps point, his Peace Corps game was pretty on point. I just needed to give him a few a few pointers about how it worked, and he just fell into it just like that.
2: I think personally I would have been so jealous and upset about the whole situation. I would have been like, Hey, I'm the voluntary here, I'm the one who's learning, and this guy just shows up for two days or whatever amount of days and you guys think it's great? No no no, that's not gonna
0: happen. Same. I would have been on like defense. I would have been like, I he's been done with service. He did it for two years. Okay guys, I'm new. Like, give me a break. <laughs>
1: I, yeah, I was sort of annoyed and irritated. I would say, like, damn it, Ken, like, stop, sh- you know, stop <laughs> show- showing off. But, you know, it was also fun to see him. I mean, it was somebody I had known for, like, 20 years. So, you know, I give him a little bit of a break for Yeah, that. And I can understand now as a Peace Corps volunteer. One of the things that was a little bit I noticed about them being right out, there were, you know, and I was only six months and as they were a little rough around the edges, they were just like a little bit like <laughs> unacculturated, I would say. You know, they'd sort of been, you know, in rural Senegal for two years, and it kind of showed. They're a little, uh, a little bit off in social situations. It was a little bit strange. But then I'm oh like, after two years, I'm like, okay, now I get it. <laughs> I see where you're, I see where you're coming from now. I mean, I was only six months in, so I hadn't been there so long, but. They had just spent two years in, you know, in Peace Corps. Yeah, so we I got to travel around, and, and they actually um, afterwards we went to this place called Chef Shaolin, which is really beautiful. It's this blue city. Uh, yeah. You guys get to go there? Yeah,
2: we got to go there. It's so wonderful.
1: One of the other reasons about Chef Shawin is it's super chill. And one of the reasons why is there's, like, a lot of hash in the area. It's, like, one of the major hash (laughs) productions. And my friends were able to go out there and get some, like, super cheap from a neighbor. Like, I mean, a farmer just outside Chef Shawin because they just, like, they're just like, oh, this is expensive. We'll just, like, go straight to the source and find some (laughs) local dude and buy it from them. So they went off and got some that. I found out later was apparently like a really good deal They, you know, they, they had their bargaining skills were pretty on point.
2: We definitely visited Chef Shawin. We really enjoyed this ice scene. We definitely didn't know about the harsh and I don't think we would have bought any anyways.
1: <laughs> they were up for finding it when we were there. So they, they you know. okay. yeah. there was three of them. Yeah. They were all guys. They're like, all right, we're going to go talk to some local dude and, and buy it from <laughs> him directly. No middlemen. We, we don't, we don't need any of that.
2: How do you feel about the Moroccan food? What was your favorite dish? Did you learn how to make it? And do you still have the chance to make it there in D.C.? Or do you find it anywhere in D.C.?
1: No, a little bit, to some degree. Um, so my favorite food is tagine. That's sort of like a national dish. And in the rural areas, I eat it a lot. In, in cities, maybe not so much. I'm sure you had some tagine while you are there.
2: Okay, The tradition keeps on then. We did try the tagine, and it was, I'm vegetarian, and it was really good. It has like a very specific kind of taste i don't i
0: obviously i cannot describe it but it is very good i agree with you carol i liked your dish better than mine because mine had chicken in it i believe and honestly i didn't really like it but i remember trying yours with the vegetables and being kind of jealous because like i love the potatoes that were there (laughs) and everything and i was like dang i should have got this instead
1: (laughs) So people aren't familiar tagine is both literally the dish that it's made in and what the dish is called and it's it's like this clay pot So, so yeah the tagine is literally the pot and it's also the food that's made in in the pot and it was really delicious my host mother made it it was pretty awesome um so that was really good you know it's basically like this sort of i'd say a thick heavy stew it takes about three plus hours to make it properly I tried making it a few times. I mean, I'm like, oh, I'm Peace Corps, I have plenty of time. But it didn't come out nearly as good as all the tagine I had from people who had been spent decades. So I sort of gave up. I mean, I made it several times myself. But in, as I said, it is pretty labor intensive. It's about three hours. And Peace Corps, I do have that kind of time. But do I want to spend that much time for what I get? Maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, maybe <laughs> not. Maybe <laughs> not.
0: How did you cook it, though? Like, did you have a stove or something? Like, how is it cooked originally?
1: Well, one is I bought it. I went and bought a tagine at my local market only for 10 dirhams, which is about $1.40 or whatever to buy it, like just a little tagine. And so I put it over, I had a little Buddha gas stove and I had a little metal, I guess I think it was like an old paint can or something that I put down on top so that the 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 clay wasn't directly over the flame and I use that to cook it um so you the the base of all tagine is some kind of meat so you have to cut that up it's you know beef or where I was a lot of times goat or or whatever and you have that so that gets slow cooked and then you slowly over time add in vegetables and stuff so you have to sort of tend to it over three hours it takes a while a lot of it's just kind of waiting and you add some water and the and the cone part of it is very intentional because that helps like I guess bring the water and stuff up to the top of the of the clay pot and then it sort of drips down it's part of the cooking process I don't know exactly the whole details but it's it's all part of it um but it 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 takes it definitely takes some time and effort um so tagine is definitely my favorite I don't cook it. However, I did get into cooking scrambled eggs because that was something I bought bought a lot of. Um and also spaghetti. It took me a little while because I couldn't buy spaghetti in my in my community, but like in Azilal province and stuff I could So that's something I started in Peace Corps and now I've been, you know, 12, 13 years of making those and I, I make a, I make a really good omelette and really good spaghetti. I mean, it's evolved over time, but I've really, I've really got it down. I've really got those two dishes down. So I did learn how to uh, cook some, cook some food, but it wasn't the Moroccan tagine.
2: Yeah. It's just the taste of the spices. You know, you can't really transfer those. It's from the land. It comes from the land. There is no way to to get it 100% correct.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of spices, there's a lot of different things. So it sounds like you went with the vegetarian the, the vegetable one, which is good. Yeah, they're all they all can be good, you know. But yeah, you know, and, and the lamb, lamb is I really like the lamb, but that's usually for like weddings and stuff. That's like not not your average dish that you would make it on a random like Tuesday, say. Um but those are good, and, and I, I, that's when, when I do have a chance to have tagines here in Moroccan places, usually I'll get the blam dish. And there are some around here in DC, and there's actually a pretty decent Moroccan population. Um, unfortunately I found no legitimately good Moroccan places. There's some decent ones, but nothing like really Morocco. But you can get the tea, the mint tea, I don't know if you guys
2: Oh my god,
0: yes. So good <laughs> Oh, I love the mint tea. Yes. <laughs> I still have some. I still drink it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the mint tea was really on point. You know, the the yeah. Moroccans really love mint tea. And that's something here you can get it, you know, you can always get good mint tea basically anywhere here. That's that's really good. A lot of sugar though. They use so much sugar. <laughs>
0: I'm not opposed to that. It's fine.
1: <laughs> but it, but it's really um, amazing and excellent.
0: Oh, yeah, so much. Going along
2: the, the lines of, like, cooking and doing things at home, do you remember what was that, sh- that short that you had to do that was either really fun to do that you were like, oh, my God, yes, I do this every day, or that one that you just dragged that you had to be like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this, but I have to.
1: For me, and this is a non-fun chore, but hand washing my clothes in the winter, when it was really cold, oh really cold, really cold, really I'm, cold, I'm having to go out there hand washing. It's you know like 45 or 50 degrees out. Not fun. You know the water gets pretty cold. This, yeah, sometimes when it was really cold, I'd be scrubbing so long. Sometimes, um, my my fingers would bleed a little bit around like the fingernails a little bit. Oh my God. Yeah, I think it was like cold water. I mean, eventually, I mean, it, you yeah. know, I'd have to be like an hour and, you know, I might have some warm water like to warm it up, ve- you know, at the beginning, but after an hour, it just kind of gotten back to being really cold. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to like be happy with how much I've cleaned my clothes at this point because I'm not cleaning anymore. I'm done. That's my sign to be over with. So, yeah, that was, that was not so fun.
0: Dang, that sounds awful. Yeah, I never got that cold in Madagascar, so we can't even imagine. (laughs) Um, But I can't imagine having a clean clothes with like really cold water. That stinks. Moving on to a new topic, how did Peace Corps help you professionally?
1: The short answer is it didn't really, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Great. I love your honesty.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. So I came back in 2009, which is a pretty rough time you know, economically, and I left in 2007, so when I left, it was before the crash and everything, so the whole crash and everything happened while I was in Peace Corps, and I was aware of it, I mean, it, you know, I, you know, I tried to follow as long as I can, but as you know, when you're in Peace Corps, it's like, oh, stuff's happening in America and whatever, but, like, you're not, like, totally in all the details, so, like, I didn't know, and um, that was my first time in D.C., so I moved. I moved back several years later, and that was better, but, I just didn't know anything. I'm just like I, I showed up without a job. I'm like because they said like the, the best way to get a job in D C is to be there. So like all right, I'm I don't have a job but I'm just gonna like show up and get a job and it was just it was just a tough environment for those years afterwards. Um well it didn't help me professionally so much. I became very active and I've stayed pretty active in the D C community. The Peace Corps community here is really huge and really big. Um I've been on the board on and off. Of the local group here one of the local groups i should say actually here in dc we've got we've got a lot of uh, affinity groups um, within the government so there's actually dozens of different peace corps community groups here in dc and i happen to be the one of the dc groups, so the largest sort of all-encompassing one but there's all sorts of subgroups of peace corps and i've really plugged in over the last 10 years developed some really great relationships and experiences through that um friendships and just really plugging in so that way peace corps has really identified i've stayed with the community the national peace corps association is here peace corps headquarters so i've been able to have a chance through that to like meet the last like three directors. I believe I met in person, not that I know them, like, <laughs> like I've shake, shake hand, not like they know who I am, but you know, I have been able to meet them and, and various events and stuff. So I've really been plugged in to the community and stayed connected, but um, on the professional front, uh, not, not as much.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that. I always like to hear different opinions or what happens. So I'm really glad that you can give us like that perspective of that way you could still stay active, but maybe it doesn't always help you professionally, which is more than okay. But it is good to know. Would you ever consider doing Peace Corps again?
1: The answer is yes, I would. I would like to I would like to do it again. Maybe not immediately, but I do see, you know, in the future I would like to, you know, go back again. Um there's some things like I'm definitely uh, there's some things I could definitely do differently. Like I know now, you know, and it's something I would, you know, I think I would like maybe, I don't know, like depending in five or 10 years, who knows, but, I, or maybe, you know, later when I'm, when I'm much older, but I would like to do it Um again here in DC. I've met a number. I've met a few people who've done more than one time in Peace Corps and they've really liked it. Um And I could see doing it again differently would be, would be nice.
0: So would you want to do a whole new service or would it be more of like a Peace Corps response?
1: Probably a whole new service. I mean, maybe Peace Corps response. I actually happen to know the person who's running Peace Corps response at the moment because I served with them <laughs> in Morocco.
2: Nice. Ooh, can you give it like a little bit of feedback about me? Because I did apply recently for a uh, response positions. Just tell her, tell that person that Carol is a good fit.
1: <laughs> I can try passing that on. One of the things I know about Peace Corps responses it tends to be very specific. So you know, you need the specific technical skills. And at this point, I don't speak Berber, so I don't speak another language. And I feel like a lot of the Peace Corps response—not all of them—I mean, but just in general—seeing uh, Peace Corps response and then before their response, what it was for—they're um, probably a little bit too specific for me to qualify. But although I. Happen to know somebody's running the office at the moment, so I could probably talk to him and learn more about it. That's actually a funny thing that actually brings back. Um, um, he was actually so in my cohort, my training cohort. Um, there's about thirty something of us for that started in the health program. There's the environment volunteers as well, but they got separated and did training separately. Um, of that cohort, two of them I had met before, and he was actually one of them. He was actually I met him once actually. Way back in the beginning, it loops it all the way back um, to the beginning of what we are saying about how I learned about Peace Corps during that thing in high school. He was one of those kids who was who was there and part of the program. Um, I didn't know him very well. I mean, there was 200 of us or something in the program or 250, but he was actually one of those kids that I met one time. So when we were in training, I'm like, you look vaguely familiar. We eventually put it together that he was also part of that program.
0: That's really cool. Is there a certain country that you're interested in going for your second term if you go?
1: Good question. I don't know exactly. Um, I I mean, I've heard from a lot of different people. I have to say, I mean, I, I feel like the Caribbean would be a nice place to get placed. I think that would uh-huh. be fun. I've heard lots of good things. It seems like there's a lot of upsides and not so many downsides. I've heard, I've heard a lot of uh, stories from those people, particularly from post-Soviet. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to anyone from sort of post-Soviet countries about, uh, that's tough, you know, it's tends to be cold, you know, food. I I really lucked out with, you know, Morocco, you know, the Moroccan food is really great.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure the weather would be amazing.
1: Yes. I, you know, I, I, I mean, it's the same as well for, um, if you're, you're out there sort of in some of the islands out in the Pacific but it's also like super isolating. It's like super beautiful, but really isolating. You're really far away from a lot of places. And it seems like the Caribbean has some of those nicer aspects, but you're not so far away from things as well.
0: And I do want to ask, so you said you wanted to do a second Peace Corps service eventually because you know a few things you do differently. So along those lines, do you have any advice for individuals who are still interested in joining the Peace Corps and will, and are currently maybe in the application or applying process?
1: Well, one of the things I didn't fully take advantage of here when I came to D.C., and I've seen a lot of people, particularly here in D.C., and this is probably why, of having the NCE, or non-competitive eligibility, is a real big thing, is, is actually a really great way to get into federal government. And I've talked to people, and it's a little bit tricky and particularly in peace corps i remember when i was the first time like i couldn't have really thought of nce i just wasn't in that kind of mental state after being in peace corps like a year and a half two years um but you know that is something um that has worked well for a lot of people i've seen in dc If something like i could see like i uh, definitely try taking advantage now i fully understand and get what it is and it's it's a great thing um for those who are willing to do it and it's amazing to meet Peace Corps volunteers who are going through that you know with like six months left to go to get that process started because it is kind of a lengthy one like during service and have a like federal job lined up when they're done I'm like wow that's Uh pretty amazing but that was something that's as as well as some other things I just think with service you know just with age and just a bit more maturity I just feel like you know there's just some various things about service that I think, you know, could have been better. I mean, nothing specific, but I just think, that, you know, just a different mindset would be helpful in life experiences to just be able to be a little bit more prepared, you know, psychologically going in for what you're going and being able to just do things, particularly in the beginning that might make things a little easier
0: well thank you so much that is all the questions we have for you today and it's been very fun hearing your tale and just learning more about how it was in morocco the chaos it seemed to be between like languages and currency like my god like (laughs) you were just pulled every which way and trying to balance it all like i i personally cannot imagine and i did do a peace corps service but luckily it was slightly easier we just had two currencies and one language we had to worry about (laughs) so (laughs) um because there was Franks and Ariari in Madagascar. So there was two different types that we had to like calculate, but it probably was nowhere near as complex as yours. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and being willing to be one of our interviewees. Yeah,
2: thank you, Jess. I really, really enjoyed your tale because it's been very different from what we have heard so far. Like very, 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 very different. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yes, it was really fun. All right,
1: great. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you.
0: So thank you again to our listeners for listening to Jesse's tale. If you want to see a few photos from his uh, time during Peace Corps, you can go to our website at peacecortales.weebly.com. So that's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot ycom And there you'll be able to see the show notes, a little like blurb about Jesse's experience and also some photos to kind of highlight some of the areas that he talked about today. So, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great time. And for those who are interested in Peace Corps, please remember that Peace Corps will be the toughest job you'll ever love. And Veluma! Goodbye, everyone.
2: Veluma, big Good night.